Hello, my name's Graham Trigg. I'm head of the, the client services team here at Hempson's. Welcome to the first practitioners podcast from the Hempson's team. With me today, I've got Alison Oliver and Kirsty O'Dell, who are corporate specialists in our GP team. I've got Bryn Morgan, who's a real estate specialist. And from the Harrogate office, I've got employment law specialist, Julia Gray. How are we all? Hi, Graham. We're fine. Thank you. Yeah, very good, Graham. Excellent. Now, we're all over different parts of the country, so uh, we're, we're on Skype for this podcast. Um, the technology has been behaving itself recently, and as long as everyone's bandwidth holds up, we're going to uh, hopefully have a trouble-free podcast today. So let's get cracking. So what we thought we would do, uh, given the fast pace uh, of changing in response to COVID-19 outbreak, is go through some of the uh, very often frequently asked questions that, that, that have been uh, asked of us by our client base over the last few days. So, um, you know, obviously the usual caveats apply, you, you know, anything we talk about today, you know, if somebody has a similar issue, they really need to um, get advice that is specific to their circumstances. But what we hope to be able to do today is to give people a bit of a, a pointer, a bit of an indicator as to how some of the legal issues uh, might apply to people's uh, situations. So given the whole change in people's working circumstances, employment issues must obviously be a major concern for GP practices. Uh, Julia, I mean, what are the types of queries have you been receiving? We've had lots of calls coming in about staffing difficulties, in, mm. in particular managing staff who can't work or won't work, uh, about accessing the new job retention scheme. Uh, and furloughing staff. With the Easter holiday period on us uh, very shortly, we've had questions about whether practices can cancel leave that's been booked or make staff carry over unused leave into the next leave year to to push it forward uh, Mm -hmm. to a time when the crisis will hopefully have passed. Um, If you're managing holiday, remember there are essentially two types of holiday. It can get a little bit sticky here, but there are essentially two types of holiday here, and we have to think about them differently. The first is statutory holiday. That's someone's legal minimum entitlement. And the second is contractual holiday, which is an optional extra. In relation to contractual holiday, the message is always to go back, check your contracts and policies and see what you're you're allowed to do under the contract. Statutory holiday is a little bit more complicated. It's divided into holiday that accrues under the European Working Time Directive. That's the first four weeks for a full-timer. And there's statutory holiday under the National Working Time Regulations, and that's 1.6 weeks for a full-timer. It's always been fine to agree with your staff for them to carry over untaken working time regulation leave into Mm. a new leave year. Until a couple of weeks ago, though, working time directive leave, that's the four weeks, had to be taken in the year when it accrues. Part of the raft of recent emergency legislation has seen a relaxation of that restriction. So carrying over untaken working time directive leave is now allowed as long as the reason it couldn't be couldn't be taken in the leave when it accrued was because of coronavirus. Um, we've also had questions about cancelling booked annual leave as I said um, subject to what your contracts and policies say you can do this by giving twice the length of notice as the length of the holiday. 
But we are urging employers to be careful about doing this sort of thing. Cancelling leave at short notice could be a breach of trust and confidence, which would allow the worker to resign and claim constructive dismissal. So now, more than ever, employers need to be sensitive to people's individual circumstances, especially where someone might have booked holiday to juggle, say, caring responsibilities, mm. something like that. That's really interesting, Julia. I mean, so that's talking about people that, that want to cancel leave potentially, but what about, there must be other members of staff that are not necessarily involved in COVID-19 response um, and therefore potentially aren't being used to full capacity at the moment. I mean, can practices force those members of staff to, to take leave, perhaps as an alternative to, to being laid off? Yes, you can force staff to take holidays as long as you abide by your employment contracts and you give appropriate notice but you can you can um, give notice for them to take holiday at a certain time of the year yes yeah julia just following up on kirsty's um earlier query um you, uh, she mentioned that uh, some staff uh, who may be perhaps dealing with more routine work and taking a um, some more of a back seat during the crisis uh, might be underutilised. Um, some practices have asked whether it's it's possible to redeploy them to do uh, other work currently in high demand. Um, what, what sort of issues are there from an employment law perspective? The key to successful employee relations in this crisis is maintaining good communication with your being open with them, being fair with them. Lots of what you'll be asking them to do will be above and beyond their day jobs. Mm. If you have staff buy-in when you're asking them to do this, um, you can put into place whatever working arrangements are lawful and safe. Obviously, the staff need to be competent to do what you're asking them to do. And I would say it's also a good idea to document where you're asking staff to do something extra um, be clear about what you're asking them to do so documenting it is a good idea and documenting what if anything they're going to receive in return such as overtime or time off in lieu again the key here is as far as possible take staff with you as an employer you do have rights to enforce changes to working practices if necessary you can issue a formal instruction to staff in writing that's what we call a reasonable management instruction and warn them that if they don't comply you'll treat it as a disciplinary issue but the instruction does have to be reasonable Julie, we've had a, a number of queries about pregnant staff. So pregnancy, of course, is one of the conditions that's considered under the government's guidance to make a person um, particularly vulnerable to the effects of the coronavirus. Um, where possible, such staff should work at home. But what if that isn't possible? So, for example, if their role necessitates face-to-face -face contact with patients? Pregnancy, it can be give rise to some really tricky issues here. It's one of the categories included in the government's list of vulnerable people who are strongly advised to socially isolate, avoid traveling on public transport and to work from home. Uh, if she can't work from home, depending on how far along she is with her pregnancy, the employee might choose to start her maternity leave early. You can force her to do, but you, uh, she might choose to. If not, and she's not entitled to SSP under the new regulation, you should consider whether you give her suitable alternative work that she can do from home. If not, you'll have to conduct a risk assessment 
uh, which she's entitled to anyway of her being in the workplace and under that you'd need to consider suspending her on full pay in accordance with the management of health and safety at work regulations. That's that's interesting Julia so but what about people who um, who are perhaps just too anxious about um, the coronavirus to come into work so they haven't perhaps got any other um, underlying health condition or any particular reason to be self-isolating but just don't want to come to work? We're encouraging practices to be sympathetic to those kinds of concerns and to try to work around them by, for example, offering flexible working or allowing the employee to take some holiday or even some unpaid leave. Somebody with very severe anxiety might need to take sick leave, be, be, be actually sick and therefore be entitled to SSP or contractual sick pay. And do remember that uh, severe anxiety could actually be a disability under the Equality Act. And that would mean that the employee would be entitled to reasonable adjustments. So there's been lots of discussion in the news generally about um, the government's job retention scheme, um, enable employers to uh, grant part, uh, uh, enabling employers to receive a grant to cover part of the salary costs of staff who would otherwise have to be laid off. Again, I gather this is something that practices have inquired about. But, uh, is the scheme even open to GP practices? Well, there's still quite a lot of uncertainty about that, Graham. The government's own guidance on furlough says that employers who are continuing to receive public funding for staff costs aren't expected to use the scheme. It also says that organisations who are receiving public funding specifically to provide services necessary to respond to COVID are not expected to furlough staff. In my view, the word expected there is quite ambiguous. Uh, it might just mean that whoever wrote the guidance didn't anticipate that organisations like GP practices, who we all know will be working flat out in these times, would want to furlough staff. But we know that the situation is more complex than that and uh, GPs practices might well have staff who don't have enough to do. They don't have the right balance of staff in place to address the situation. Many GPs I've spoken to have less need for admin support because they're doing fewer face-to-face -face consultations and some have seen a decline in private revenue streams. In normal times, these kinds of factors would be considered grounds for redundancy and avoiding redundancy is exactly what the job retention scheme was designed to avoid. The principle so, behind the guidance is that practices shouldn't be paid twice for the same thing. That is to say, um, normal income and money under the furlough scheme. When practices are telling me that they're experiencing a drop in income and they have something akin to a genuine redundancy situation, which they want to avoid by furloughing, I'm advising them to carefully evidence their decision making so that they can provide evidence later if required. We do know that where applications under the scheme are successful, HMRC intends to audit businesses which receive funding and they're going to weed out the fraudulent ones. So thanks Julia. Obviously so many employment law issues for practices to consider. Um, we could we could talk all, all day, you know, that about uh, just simply employment law issues for, for for GP practices. Are there sort of any reliable sources of external information that that 
that are available for, for GPs at the moment. Yeah. Okay, both Public Health England and ACAS have guidance on these areas. We'll put links in the show notes and obviously the HMRC guidance on the scheme itself will also link to. Excellent. Okay, thanks, Julia. So we've talked a lot about employment law issues. Um, other than employment law issues, uh, what, are, what, what are the other key things that, that people have been asking? Uh, Kirsty? Yeah, so I think the employment law issues are probably the burning questions at the moment, and, and we've obviously addressed some of those. Uh, and other things, I think, um, are mainly around the practices um, being concerned about the financial impact <clears throat> that this might have for them. Um, so, for example, particularly if they can't meet their targets um, in respect of QAF because they're focusing on, on COVID-19 response, um, and then questions generally around what services they should and shouldn't be providing at the moment. Um, so NHS England has issued some guidance on how they may be able to prioritise work, um, and we've included those in the links um, within the FAQs. I think it is really important for practices to consider and to review the guidance. There are some suggestions in there on some of the services that they might be able to suspend um, at the moment, so patient reviews, annual health checks, that kind of thing. Um, and it's also been suggested that private work should cease um, to free up capacity for the COVID-19 response. Um, and then from a financial side, NHS England has confirmed that QAF payments are expected to be as usual for 1920, but there might be a one-off adjustment where practices earn less than what they did in 1819 um, because of the impact of COVID-19. And then for, for 2021, QAF payments are, are also protected as necessary. So the rates are expected to continue on the assumption that practices would maintain the same levels that they've achieved previously. So it seems that practices have had some assurances about income levels, but many will no doubt still be concerned about the financial position. The payment receipt of rent is obviously a major issue for businesses as liability for business rates. Bryn, have you had any inquiries from practices on these sort of things? Uh, yeah, thanks, Graham. Yeah, we've we've had a, a number of inquiries on these issues, um, particularly from uh, landlords who are concerned about whether their tenants will be able to keep up with rent payments. Um, for instance, I recently advised a, a reti retired GP who leases his former surgery premises to a children's nursery and uh, his tenants has asked for a rent holiday. Um, I think just just as a, an aside here, it's, I think it's important that if, if you are a landlord and you receive a, a request for a rent, a rent holiday that you, you pause and think, because agreeing to this could mean that you're waiving the rent for that particular period, period altogether. Um, now, if you contrast that with the way the government has suggest, has, is, is offering protection for commercial tenants who are in that situation, what, what, what the government, government provisions um, allow is for the, um, the, the commercial tenants to be protected from eviction um, if they can't pay their rent because of COVID-19. Uh, and this protection is going to last um, until the 30th of June this year, at least possibly longer. Um, but it is it's very clear that in the guidance that this isn't a, a rent holiday. Rather, it's it's giving tenants more time uh, to pay, and in the meantime, protecting them from from being being evicted. Um, if if, you, if we look at it from the perspective of GPs who are paying rent for their premises, um, obviously, if if um, if those premises are being used for NHS services, then uh, they should be receiving rent reimbursements. 
Um, so hopefully the present situation won't affect uh, GPs' abilities to pay rents. And certainly um, I would be concerned if a GP came to me and said, oh, look, we're, we're thinking of using our rent reimbursement to shore up finances somewhere else because um, that could cause all kinds of issues in terms of auditing later on. Um, that said, I do know there are a number of GPs who, who lease parts of their surgeries to others, maybe to pharmacists or a dentist. Um, and it's conceivable that those tenants may um, may, may be struggling financially um, and may may ask for a rent holiday. Um, particularly aware that some dentists are, are struggling at the moment, um, given that you know most of them are, are they're only meant to be opening for emergency appointments. Um, just in terms of rent holidays, um, I think you, you've got to be. Uh, careful, as I said, um, you, some landlords may be willing to waive rents, but I suspect most will will want to reserve their position and see how things develop. So uh, it's it's really important that they um, uh, seek legal advice um, if approached by tenants asking those kinds of questions. Okay, thanks, Bruce. So what about business rates? Uh, do, do, uh, are there any holidays available on that for surgeries? Uh, yes, Graham. Um, certainly, uh, a number of businesses are are being heavily impacted, um, obviously by the lockdown, uh, and are indeed entitled to business rates holidays. These include uh, retail, hospitality, and uh, leisure sector businesses, and also children's nurses nurseries. Um, in terms of surgery premises, um, uh, this should, th th there isn't a business rates holiday at the moment. Um, uh, for, for the uh, the um, simple reason that, of course, G GPs are are going to continue to be opened and and indeed are um, uh, entitled to rent re reimbursement of their rents uh, rates under the premises cost directions. So uh, it shouldn't be an issue for them. Obviously, um, if you do have other tenants, uh, it's worth being up to speed with whether or not they may have a, a rates holiday if needed. Thanks, Brent. So. Kirsty, before COVID-19 outbreak, major preoccupation for practices with a new network contract DES specifications. provoked a lot of controversy um, before Christmas. Uh, can you give us an update? Yes, uh, we, ha we have had some clarification on that. And you're right, it was um, certainly a topic of conversation before Christmas and now seems a, a distant memory. Um, the guidance does confirm that funding attached to the PCN DES will still be available. Um, but some elements have understandably been postponed. So, for example, the structured medication review spec will be postponed until October. Um, and then the incentive scheme is also being deferred, although investment for the first two quarters of 2021 will be paid to PCNs as support funding. So PCNs are still being encouraged to start work on things like the early cancer diagnosis and the enhanced health and care homes. Mm. Um, so they're going to continue as planned. Um, but obviously, that has to be in alignment with COVID-19 response. Um, PCNs are being given more time to submit their additional workforce plans, um, and CDs are also entitled to delegate their functions to non-clinicians. So again, it's just trying to align it with the COVID-19 response and free up capacity where it can be freed up. Um, additional workforce already taken would obviously be of vital importance to, to COVID-19 response, and I think it's this is a real opportunity for PCNs to to work together um, as part of the, the combat for the outbreak as well. And so, Alison, um, for you, what, what are some of the major issues that you've, you've been asked about recently? 
Uh, yeah, well, as well as um, the issues that Kirsty's been talking about, um, there are some perhaps more mundane points, but that are nonetheless quite important. So, so one is, for example, about how the impact of the outbreak um, on partner absences might affect things like decision making. So most practices will have a, a partnership agreement that, that sets out um, the procedures for how decisions are taken, the kinds of majority that are required to take certain types of decision, um, and the number of partners that, that must be present at a meeting. Um, now, if the partnership agreement assumes that meetings are to take place in a specific physical location with all the partners physically present um, and with a set number of partners being at the meeting in order for it to be quorate, the ability to take decisions could be quite seriously impacted if you've got one or more partners um, absent, either self-isolating or even worse, if they have actually had a diagnosis and are unwell. Um, it's theoretically possible um, and some partnership agreements will permit decisions to be taken um, by meetings with partners taking part remotely. So, for example, through telephone or video conferencing. Um, but it's worth checking whether your partnership agreement um, does actually permit this. Um, similarly, some partnership agreements will allow partners to take certain decisions without reference to absent partners um, in situations of emergency. Um, and it's, it's not unfeasible that uh, practices could be faced with situations such as perhaps having to close a branch surgery because of understaffing um, or enter an emergency contract with NHS England um, in order to deliver a different set of um, services or perhaps enter uh, contracts with other providers um, to obtain support to be able to continue to provide their services or to provide services collabor collaboratively. And those are the kinds of decision that um, might typically in a partnership require um, a high majority of partners to agree or even um, for the, require the partners to decide those things unanimously. Um, so it's worth practices having a look at their partnership agreements, checking whether um, their existing decision-making procedures will permit them to be able to make decisions in this agile way and sometimes quite important decisions. Unfortunately, in these kinds of situations, we do quite often see um, in times of, of crisis and stress and, and, and practices being stretched, this can typically be when, when you can get problems arising with um, disputes between partners. Um, and the last thing practices need is, is for the partners that are present in a practice to take an important decision like this um, without reference or involvement to um, a partner who is absent and for that absent partner to then um, start challenging the decision that's been made. It just adds another layer of complication to a situation that's already very difficult for practices. So it's really worth looking at your looking at their partnership agreement, seeing whether perhaps changes are needed and perhaps a temporary or emergency decision making 
structure or protocol to be put in place uh, to enable them to respond to these situations um, while, while the pandemic is, is, is ongoing. Another uh, sort of practical issue that, that's arisen um, is around the practical aspects of getting documentation probably uh, properly executed for transactions that are going ahead despite the pandemic. So, for example, um, we've had a number of practice mergers that have still completed um, during this period, um, and that involve, involves uh, the partners um, executing legal documentation, um, important documentation that has to be done properly, um, and attending to the necessary execution formalities uh, for documents to be properly legally binding can be challenging at the best of times and particularly when signatories are in isolation with suspected or confirmed COVID-19. Um, now Bryn, um, presumably have you experienced this with your property work as well? Uh Yes, Alison, I think um, this is certainly a, a big problem at the moment and um, it's it's exercised, I think, a number of legal brains up and down the country. Um, uh, typically, I mean, there are two types of legal document that may need to be signed. Um, the first is is what is known as a, a contract underhand. Um, and this is this is a basically a contract that needs to be signed, but the signature doesn't need to be witnessed. Um, an example would be, say, a contract for the sale of a property. Um, normally, and this would hopefully be fairly straightforward because you, the the person that needs to sign can um, can either print um, print off the document, sign it, and and scan it scan it back, or um, otherwise. I believe there are kind of electronic signature platforms such as uh, DocuSign and Adobe Sign, which um, could potentially be used. Um, it's a bit more complicated. Uh, where a document is is a deed, as um, as here the signature needs to be witnessed by another adult. Um, and examples of this would be partnership deeds, uh, declarations of trust, uh, leases, and uh, land registry transfer deeds. Um, and the problem we have is that currently uh, under English law, um, the witness must be physically present um, with the signatory um, and and um, of, a video link, for instance, um, doesn't suffice. Um, so uh, what we have, yeah, we're having to be creative to a certain extent here because um, uh, obviously times times are tough, and we have to make um, uh, we, we have to find a way through. So one suggestion has been that whilst um, uh, it's not ideal, it may be possible in certain circumstances for an adult family member to act as a witness. Uh, but you'd really you'd need to be really careful and and certainly check with your lawyer before uh, going down that route. Um, certainly, this isn't an option where the uh, the witness is another party to the deed, or or say in the case of a will um, it, it, that that person is a, a potentially a beneficiary under under the will. Um, other kind of inventive options I've I've heard suggested include. Um, Perhaps asking a, a neighbour to witness a signature through a closed window, um, with the document then posted through the letterbox, and uh, so, so that the witness can sign and post it back through again. Um, obviously, though, you know, if, you, if you're attempting anything like that, um, you, you need to be very careful in terms of uh, not not breaching social distancing rules and um, maybe taking other steps like um, wearing disposable gloves and and that sort of thing. 
Thanks, Brent. It sounds like an absolute minefield. And certainly yesterday on BBC Radio, um, people do need to be careful. As I, I, I was hearing uh, stories of people certainly getting um, signatures witnessed using video link, uh, which sounds like they, those people could be an, indeed on slightly shaky ground should there be issues down the line. Kirsty, um, there have been some emergency provisions introduced to enable the NHS to make arrangements that might not have been possible under the existing regulations. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about those? Yeah, of course. So Alison mentioned earlier the ability to compel practices to open uh, on bank holidays. Um, as well as that, the emergency legislation also gives a bit more flexibility for healthcare providers to enter into arrangements with other providers. Uh, like NHS bodies. So that's going to be really important for deploying staff and sharing facilities um, and gener generally coordinating activities across different groups. Um, practices are also being asked to process and share confidential patient information uh, with other organisations, so those that are also involved in, in the COVID-19 response. Um, so that's intended to be in place until the end of September and that will automatically expire unless there's another notice issued before before then. Um, and then also on the topic of data security, there's been an extension um, to the compliance deadline. So, so we've got until the end of September now to, to, submit, to submit that. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, everybody. That has been... A bit of a whirlwind tour around the various issues that um, GP uh, practices are are facing under the uh, coronavirus outbreak. Everybody, thank you very much for your time. I uh, hope everybody listening to the podcast has found that really useful. Uh, this is one of a number of Hempson's podcasts. We've got other podcast streams running covering regulatory and crime issues. Uh, more general health and social care law podcast series ongoing already. If you need to contact either Julia, Alison, Bryn or Kirsty, their contact details are all available on our website. On the other hand, if you do need to speak to us more urgently, uh, do call our GP, uh, free G GP advice line. The number is 020-7839-0278 and uh, ask to speak to somebody on, on the GP advice line. But for now, thank you very much, everybody, and we'll see you soon.